The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. August 25th, 2020, three quarters of a millennium ago today, August 25th, 1270, Philip III became King of France despite having very bad dysentery. Uh, As we would now say, he's the first member of the dysenteric community to be on a national ticket. He shattered the dysentery ceiling. He taught little girls similarly afflicted that all things are possible. A week ago, we had a blizzard of F-words and many listeners commented that they liked the new unexpurgated Mark Stein show and it's the non-F-word parts of the show they can't stand. So could I F and blind some more? Uh, well, no. Bleep off, you mother bleepers. You'll have to make do with a filthy song by Kitty Callan coming up. Uh, I'm a long way from America right now. Trying to figure a way back is incredibly difficult, but I'm keeping track of the news and I understand the big story taking the summer of stupid to new heights is that respectable mainstream figures like the historian Michael Beschloss are in a tizzy uh, over the fact that uh, Melania Trump has managed to re-landscape the Rose Garden so that it spells out KKK in giant floral arrangements. For non-Americans, KKK is a longtime Democrat organization that supplies prominent Democrat leaders such as the respected Democrat president of the Democrat Senate during 9-11 and third in line for the Oval Office, a Democrat Grand Klegel of the Democrat Ku Klux Klan, Robert C. Byrd. Uh, Did he do flower arrangements? Actually, just think how much better it would have been had all the Klansman Democrats, instead of putting up burning crosses on your lawn, just planted it with attractive beds of interestingly uh, interestingly patterned roses in K-shapes. The summer is stupid. The degradation of the remnants of American journalism continues. Will you distance yourself from QAnon? Is that how you, uh, is that how you say it? QAnon? Uh, I don't know. I've... Uh Barely heard of them. Are they seizing precinct houses in Minneapolis? Have they burned down a Wendy's in Atlanta? Are they beating people senseless on the streets of Portland? Have they murdered anyone in their autonomous zone in Seattle? Are they burning down churches or mom and pop shops uh, with Black Lives Matter signs? Oh, what's that? Oh, you've never heard. You've never heard of any of that because uh, your news division's entire investigative unit is investigating QAnon's links to Susan Collins and Martha McSally. The summer of stupid. On our last show, I mentioned Steve Bannon's arrest and criminal indictment for this group he's been pushing, We Build the Wall. And I said there were three aspects of this that were of interest to me. On Friday, I mentioned uh, the first one, that because federal justice is stinkingly corrupt, and in this case, he's got three smaller fish co-defendants whom the feds uh, will be putting the screws to to turn on him, he's almost certainly going to wind up pleading guilty to something. Uh, so today, I'd just like to say a word about the alleged criminal enterprise. We build the wall. 
in functioning societies, here's how it works. Five years ago, 2015, the government of Hungary decided to build a wall on the Serbian border because they were getting sick of waiting for the EU uh, to do something about all the strapping young, quote-unquote, Syrian, quote-unquote, refugees. Now, they did this in the teeth of total worldwide opposition. The Hungarian government is pressing on with its border fence, ignoring critics who are calling it Fortress Europe. The fence is going up to keep people like this out. Shivering in the rain, these refugees have just crossed the border illegally from Serbia. They are cold and exhausted. Oh, oh, he's shivering outside Fortress Europe, poor man. You know where he wouldn't be shivering? Back in the Syrian desert. 2015, that was. Wednesday, June 17th, to be precise. That's when the government of Hungary decided to build their Fortress Europe barrier. Fortress Europe. Who knew it was so easy? They began building it on Monday, July the 13th, or just under four weeks later. They finished it on September the 14th, or less than three months later. Soup to nuts, the whole thing. Uh, they decide to build it Wednesday, June 17th. It's finished September 14th. And it's worked in that it's kept out all those shivering Bedouin. Uh, in America, it doesn't work that way. Not if you're a conservative who thinks that Obama's line that elections have consequences ought to apply to the GOP too. The Republicans win everything, but Ryan and McConnell agree with the Dems and the permanent bureaucracy that the wall is just boob bait for the rubes, so nothing happens. Uh, the truth is, if you go to the southern border right now, nothing's happening. No construction. If you've ever employed a New Hampshire contractor, and believe me, I know. You'll know how this works. He immediately drops off a ton of clabbards or two-by-fours uh, in the yard, uh, and then you don't see him for four or five months. But the lumber sitting there is like an uh, incontinent animal uh, marking his turf. It tells all the other contractors to stay away. That's construction in my corner of the North Country. But the southern border makes these guys look like Speedy Gonzales. Nothing's going on. To woo him to the tropics was my special strategy. I had in mind how right for love this atmosphere would be. But we've been here a week now, and you can take it straight from me. Nothing's going on below the border. I haven't heard that in decades. I can't believe Kitty Callan sang it. It's too uh, crude and unsubtle to qualify as double entendre. Nothing's going on below the border. Uh, uh, nothing is happening uh, south of uh, his or her particular border. In this case, uh, nothing's going on above the border. So Trump to date on his signature election pledge has built four miles of new wall. At that rate of construction, the southern border wall will be completed 
by the year 3970. So Bannon and this other guy, Brian Colfage, a triple amputee from the Iraq war, uh, decide that the border wall has no need of government and launch this thing called We Build the Wall. Now, I'm in favour of the wall. I supported Trump in 2016 because of his immigration policy, including the wall. But We Build the Wall is bollocks. It doesn't pass anybody's smell test. It's that like that suggestion Matt Schlapp made. Uh, he's the head of uh, CPAC, the American Conservative Union. He does CPAC every year. And he says the way to respond to this defund the police thing is for everybody to park illegally and then pay their parking tickets. He says this at a time uh, when many people, including Republican voters, have not actually had a paycheck uh, since March. So asking them to drive around town parking illegally so they can run up parking tickets to pay to fund the police department is insane, even by the standards of the Republican establishment. Is there the remotest likelihood if you give money to we build the wall then you, that you're going to get a 2000 mile border wall or even a Hungarian Serbian length border wall? No. Have you been following this guy, Miles Taylor? He was apparently chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security, whatever that means. I remind you uh, that I opposed the creation of the Department of Homeland Security in the autumn of 2001. So this guy, Miles Taylor, is voting for Biden because he says whenever he and his fellow national security chiefs, assuming for the purposes of argument, that the chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security is a national security chief. Whenever he and his fellow national security chiefs went and raised national security issues with the president, Trump appeared uninterested in their issues and was obsessed with things like the wall. Well, he ought to be obsessed with the wall because it was his signature issue and having won the election, he was expected to deliver on it. That's the way it works in functioning societies such as uh, Hungary. Now, if Miles Taylor and his fellow experts aren't interested in the president's issues, they can always run for election themselves on their own platform. I saw this great list of national security experts for Biden, some of whom I'd even heard of, although not for many years. And I saw a tweet saying, wow, this is like every major Republican of the last 30 years. Are there actually any votes for republicanism of the last 30 years? In 2016, that's actually what Republican voters were voting against. All the stuff that Miles Taylor and the establishment are for, Republican voters voted against. Miles Taylor and co think that elections should not have consequences and that a uniparty view of things like Afghanistan and open borders should prevail regardless of who wins. That, to me, is the biggest scandal of the last four years, that non-entities whom nobody's heard of, like Miles Taylor, think there is a permanent enduring government that is not bound by the results of the election. Miles Taylor and co. have been so successful at pushing that view that they've denied Trump a significant proportion of his first term, uh, while at the same time accusing Trump of being obsessed by the wall, even though there is no wall. 
Trump could get some mileage out of this, but for whatever reason he prefers on the rare occasions he mentions the wall these days uh, to pretend that it's going up at an incredible rate of a mile a year. I said in the weeks after his inauguration that the wall was important not just as a physical barrier against illegal immigrants, uh, where it would do a terrific job, just like it's uh, done on the uh, Hungarian border. Uh, it wasn't important just as a physical barrier, but as a symbol of the American people's right to build a wall, the American people's right to exercise and enforce their sovereignty at the southern border. Obstructionists like Ryan and McConnell and Miles Taylor grasp that point, which is why it didn't happen. But it is a very dangerous thing, as the late Pat Cadell and I talked about one day a few years back, to teach the electorate that there are no peaceful ways to get meaningful change. Uh, the logic of that is that you're setting up revolutionary conditions. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's in Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalog at www.steinonline.com poems. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. A lady at the pole, Spain's first goal, and Parsifal in your parlour. It's August 1920. A hundred years from today. Your world news update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues in post-Ottoman Arabia. Muslim clerics in the Muntafik district of Mesopotamia are calling for a jihad against the administrators of the new British mandate. The British are said to be taking a relaxed view of the jihad. The Red Army has been decisively defeated by plucky Poland in the Battle of Warsaw, as we suggested in earlier reports. The Bolsheviks were outmaneuvered and outflanked by General Pilsudski's men in the early days of the battle, so that they never came closer than the village of Izabelin, about 10 miles from the Polish capital. The amazing victory is being called the miracle of the Vistula and marks a halt, at least for now to the westward march of Bolshevism across Europe. The present ructions in Ireland are rippling across the Atlantic following the arrest and conviction of the Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney. Irish-American longshoremen in New York are refusing to work on freight ships arriving from or bound for Great Britain. The British are getting a warmer reception in Massachusetts. The tercentenary of the landing of the Pilgrims at Provincetown is being observed, with guests from Britain, France and the Netherlands in attendance. 
U.S. Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby reviewed the parade, which observers agreed was marred by the absence of French and British sailors for whom permission to carry arms could not be obtained in time. The paperwork was less onerous when the Mayflower docked in 1620. Speaking of the Secretary of State, just four days earlier, when Mr Colby proclaimed the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, he did so at eight in the morning with only two witnesses present in his home on K Street in Washington. Despite calls by suffragists for a grand ceremony at the State Department, but there were women aplenty present just 24 hours later when the first vote to be conducted under the 19th Amendment took place in South St. Paul, Minnesota, over whether to approve an $85,000 bond for a waterline extension. Let love so brightly When the Whippoorwill sings Marguerite, it's because Marguerite beat all the other ladies to the polling station. The first woman to exercise her voting rights under the 19th Amendment was South St. Paul typist Marguerite Newberg, who describes herself as a progressive Republican and enthusiastically supported that new $85,000 waterline extension. Miss Newberg hurried down to City Hall at 5.15 a.m. and waited patiently till polls opened at 6. In other 19th Amendment news, Marie, Marie, you naughty Marie. Oh, gee, Marie, what you did to me. What Marie did was become the first woman under the 19th Amendment to vote in an election for political office as opposed to bond approval. It was in Missouri for a seat on the Hannibal City Council. 503 people cast ballots, among them 147 ladies. Marie Byram and her husband set off to walk to the polls at 5.30 in the morning and were the first there when the precinct opened at 7 a.m. Though she loves him so, she won't let him know. She keeps the poor fellow guessing. W.H. MacDonald was elected alderman, but did Mrs. Byram vote for him? It is, after all, a secret ballot. The very same day Marie Byram walked an hour and a half to the polls, the Tennessee House of Representatives attempted to take back its vote for ratification that had made Tennessee the decisive 36th state to vote for the 19th Amendment and thus make it the law of the land. The House voted 47 to 24 to expunge from its journal all record of ratification of the federal suffrage amendment and to non-concur in the ratification vote of the state Senate. What this means in legal terms is for the moment uncertain. At the Olympic Games in Antwerp, Spain's national football team played its first international match and defeated Denmark 1-0. It was Patrizio Arabolaza who scored the first ever goal in the history of the Spanish 
football team. In other sports news, the Philadelphia Phillies, last placed in baseball's National League, defeated the Chicago Cubs in what seemed like an ordinary game. Four days later, though, Cubs owner William Wrigley Jr.'s hand-picked club president, William Veek, has called for a criminal investigation on suspicions that Chicago gamblers paid various Cubs players to throw the game. We have reported in recent months on wireless broadcasts in Canada and England and the first trial run at 8MK in Michigan, the new station set up by William E. Scripps, owner of the Detroit News. Uh, 8MK has now broadcast its first program, a report on Republican primary voting in Michigan. Uh, this, though, was somewhat eclipsed by the stunning transmission of the Sociedad Radio Argentina. Approximately 20 homes in Buenos Aires and the surrounding area are believed to have heard a phenomenal event. The listeners were sitting in their houses when suddenly their parlours filled with the sound of a full orchestra. Was the orchestra in their home? No, it was at the Teatro Coliseo, accompanying the singers in a live performance of Richard Wagner's opera Parsifal. And yet for those with the necessary receiving apparatus, Wagner came to them to offer Parsifal in the parlour. for the most complete pictures ever taken of Vatican ceremonies. The Pope invited the American newsreel cameraman to capture for posterity a mass for the Knights of Columbus. Do you know what a postage meter is? You may have seen them at the larger city post offices where the company Pitney Bowes has made them a convenient substitute for individual hand-licked stamps. Now, a month after Pitney Bowes received a patent for its simplified mail marking machine, the postage meter has been approved for use at private businesses. Will the postage stamp soon be obsolete? How you gonna keep them down on the farm? I'm really happy. How 
you're gonna keep them away from Broadway, jazzing around and hitting the town. How you're gonna keep them away from harm? That's all mystery. They'll never want to see a rake or clown. And who the deuce can party to a town? How you gonna keep them down on the farm after they've seen Terry? How are you going to keep him down on the farm? That's a question they never had to ask of James Wilson, who was content to be U.S. Secretary of Agriculture for 16 years, from 1897 to 1913, which tenure made him, under three consecutive presidents, McKinley, Roosevelt and Taft, the longest-serving cabinet member in American history, now the federal officer, Responsible for American farms has bought the farm. Dead at 85, James Wilson. How you gonna keep them down on the farm after they seem happy? And that's the way of the world, August 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. I always pay close attention to Denise O'Leary's observations. Uh, And uh, apropos uh, recent developments uh, on the streets of Wokeville, uh, Denise writes from Ottawa, The trouble is... The nice middle-class woke folk, now residents of woke gone to hell, not only vote progressive, they believe progressive. They talk nice. We've all heard them. We've all bit our lips to keep from saying anything. If their homes burn or their loved ones are in intensive care, do they think that the only thing that went wrong is that it wasn't a Republican voter that all that happened to? Historically, such people form a large component of the roadkill of revolutions. They won't do as Marx suggests and put forward people to run against progressives in municipal politics, which is why the enablers of thugs continue to win. After all, that wouldn't be nice. So how constructively can Can anyone help the woke as opposed to finding some way to sever one's own interests and chances in life from theirs? I'm listening. That's a critical point, Denise. They're not voting for Joe and Kamala because of what Joe and Kamala believe. They're voting for them because of what they believe. Uh, Conservatives rightly mock lefties for that reflex bleat to which they're prone. That's not who we are. Putting children in cages? That's not who we are. Asking for paperwork at a border post? That's not who we are. Arresting looters who burn down a store with a big Black Lives Matter sign in the window? That's not who we are. Uh, But in fact, voters are who they are, and they vote for people who are like they are. I'm inclined to cut cognitive Joe's writers some slack uh, when they allegedly plagiarise Jack Layton, Canada's happy ending king, uh, with all that love is more powerful than hate, hate is more powerful, love is more powerful than hate, hope is more powerful than fear, light is more powerful than dark. Uh, That last one sounds a lot like light privilege, don't you think? Uh, You know, that's just generic fatuous pap. 
Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, Sir Wilfrid Laurier can claim to have got to it before Jack Layton did, fatuous, pat-peddling, Canadian-wise. Even Mrs. Thatcher did a bit of it in 1979, outside 10 Downing Street, on her way back from the palace after kissing hands with the Queen and being made uh, PM, she quoted St. Francis, Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is despair, may we bring hope. Again, the right laughs at the left's banality, uh, because nice leads to not nice. Open borders, family values don't stop at the Rio Grande. They just want a shot at the American dream. They're better Americans than we are because they chose America. They're American by choice. They struggle to get here, to bring their children here. And all that leads to MS-13 gangs, drug cartels, sex slavery, child rape. And yet the niceness of the delusion remains overpowering because... Uh, the wish to be thought nice is so powerful. Um, I have a bit of experience with this myself, and it's uh, in poor taste to self-review, but I don't think I've ever talked about this in great detail, uh, so I thought I might. As some of you uh, may recall, in that uh, Monk debate in Toronto, uh, in 2016, just before Trump, just before Brexit, when Nigel Farage and I were debating Louise Arbour and Simon Sharma on the Great Migrations, they were the nice side and we were the cartoon villains. And the audience was also almost suffocatingly nice, a capacity crowd of nice Toronto liberal virtue signalers. And they take two votes at every Monk debate, one at the beginning, one at the end. And the side that changes people's minds win. And at the beginning of the night, the vote was overwhelmingly in favour of the nice side. Oh, open borders, we can do this. I think it was 80-20 to Louise and Simon. And by the end... Uh, uh, of the evening uh, and the second vote, a huge chunk of Louise and Simon's support switched over to Nigel and me, one of the biggest swings ever in Monk debate history, and we won. Now, we didn't win. We didn't entirely reverse it. It wasn't 80-20 uh, for us, although it should have been, but we made progress, which is all you can do in a democratic age. And the reason for that is, uh, without giving away trade secrets, if you're the underdog, uh, and in fact, in this case, we were just sacrificial Christians being served up to the lions before the mob in Roy Thompson Hall. If you see the video footage, look at the young female student behind me. She thinks I'm so self-evidently ridiculous. I'm just digging myself in deeper and deeper. And she and her chums are all laughing at me. Uh, but I'd remembered an hour or two before the debate that Louise Arbour had been the first UN prosecutor to prosecute rape as a war crime in Bosnia and Sudan. And so I made a mental note of what appeared to be a certain inconsistency here. Madame Arbour was all about the rape in the Balkans and Africa, but not so much in Western Europe. I never dreamed Louise Arbour and Simon Sharma would give us such an opening. Both Nigel and I broke up, uh, brought up uh, some of the horrific headlines from Germany and Sweden and elsewhere. And Louise joked that we struck her as unlikely feminists and got a big laugh. And that big laugh egged on Simon, who couldn't resist sneering about how 
quote, obsessed with sex, these two guys are. It's a bit sad, really. I.e., we're only concerned about sexual assaults in Germany, Belgium, Austria, the Netherlands, France, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, because we're losers who can't get any action. And he got huge laughs, uh, including from that chick behind me. She and her pals all thought the rape shtick was hilarious. So I stood up and remarked on this and then reminded Madame Arbour of what her generation of feminists used to insist, that rape isn't about sex, it's about power. And the look on her face as it crumpled, I shall never forget. And then I riffled through a few random uh, foot-of-page 27 news stories from the continent about German girls being sexually assaulted on the way back from the station, being sexually assaulted even in City Hall, child rape, gang rape, child gang rape. And it was the hinge moment of the debate, not because I'm a brilliant debater, but because Louise and Simon realised to their horror that they'd move themselves into the not-nice set. And more importantly, many of the people who'd laughed at Simon's rape shtick realised they'd move themselves into the not-nice set too. Not the silly girl behind me who continued yucking it up, oh, unaware uh, that the mood of Roy Thompson Hall had changed, and not my old chum Jonathan Kay, who's... Uh, Served as my warm-up act a couple of times. Not great. Tends to frost up the joint. Um, and then he drifted left, uh, so he wasn't uh, warming up for me anymore. And then got cancelled and then drifted right again. Not sure uh, which spot on the spectrum he's at now. Uh, but he, he enjoyed Simon Sharma's Sham, uh, shtick about our sex obsession. He called it spirited. He couldn't hear the blithe indifference to rape and sexual assault. There's a moment in the musical Cabaret when the MC of the decadent Weimar nightclub, uh, Joel Grey, in the movie version, uh, he comes out and dances with a person in a gorilla suit wearing a tutu and sings uh, a song called If You Could See Her Through My Eyes, i.e. if you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look like a big ugly gorilla. And Cabaret is generally staged with big mirrors above the set. And it's a very funny song and everybody's laughing and the dancing's funny. And we can all see in the mirror that we're laughing and having a good time because Joel Grey's clod hopping around the stage with a gorilla. But, uh... You know, what's that got to do with the plot of uh, the story, which is all about the rise of the Nazi party in Germany? And then the song gets to the end and the MC sings the final lines. But if you could see her, so my She wouldn't look Jewish at all. And everybody laughs because a comic number develops its own rhythm. And once you're already laughing, it's easy to laugh some more. So we all laugh at that. And then the audience catches itself in the mirror, sees itself laughing and realises what it's laughing at. And the laugh dies all in a... Um, well, not a nanosecond, but not much longer than that. Because a sophisticated Broadway audience is suddenly aware, oh my God, that's me laughing at the Jews. I'm, I'm not the nice person. That's kind of sort of what happened at the Monk debate. Now, as I said, it's bad form to review one's own debate performance, and I shouldn't do it. But uh, Denise's uh, note intrigued me. Uh, 
And so I'll say that that moment in the hall liberated the nice Toronto liberals from their own psychological constraints. It liberated them to cease looking at Nigel and me as cartoons and listen to what we said, uh, said on the merits, which was really a debate about the fragility of a civilized order. Uh, you build it up over centuries, but it can fray and crumble within, in comparative terms, a moment. And you can't rebuild it in a moment. You're sort of back. Uh, it's what, what do they call it? Uh, snakes and ladders in uh, Her Majesty's dominions. Shoots uh, and ladders in America. Uh, and uh, you're back at the bottom and you've got to start from the bottom again. Uh, which is uh, uh, what's going on, going to be happening to American cities that get the BLM fever. Uh, I pointed out to, uh, basically, to take a modest view of it, uh, Bill de Blasio has done undone in a few weeks the work of three decades under uh, Giuliani and Bloomberg in, uh, in New York. Uh, and I pointed out to Louise and Simon that in their own countries, the differences between, uh, on the one hand, Quebec francophones and Canadian anglophones, the differences between Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics are utterly minimal. But nevertheless, uh, the latter led to a third of a century of murderous violence and the former... Uh, led to those Quebec francophones going to the polls and declaring that they didn't want to be in the same country as you guys. And I jabbed at that nice Toronto audience. But we're supposed to think that shishi gay couples and Somalis and post-Christian Euro trollops and Sudanese warlords can all live happily ever after in the same suburban subdivision. After the sex gags uh, from Simon... Those nice Toronto progressives didn't necessarily agree with my argument, but they were willing to listen to it in good faith, which is all anyone can ask. Now, what's the upshot of this? Uh, Denise rightly points out that this is a belief system, the belief in one's niceness. So you have to push back in those terms. The look on Louise's face, I understood that she understood that the... Uh, their side scoffing about the sexual assaults was at odds with her entire life. It's not who she is. Uh, and you won't do it by referencing clause whatever of the US Constitution, because everyone who takes the Constitution as seriously as that is already on your side. You're not going to add by doing that. The problem is it has no purchase on millions and millions of Americans whose worldview is determined by an entirely different set of governing principles. You might regret that, but it's a fact. And that's the turf you're going to have to take the battle to. Likewise, you won't do it by complaining that the Democrats left out the words under God in their Pledge of Allegiance, because the people for whom that is an issue are already voting for you. And you can only get so far as well by relying on a secret furtive uh, vote. Oh, they won't tell pollsters they're pro-Trump or pro-Brexit, but wait till they get in the voting booth. That too will only get you so far because most people want to be nice. They want to be respectable. So it becomes necessary uh, ultimately to find a line that can be uttered in public. 
Um, now, I think that's possible, as 2016 demonstrated. The Monk debate prefiguring Nigel's Brexit victory just a couple of months later. The question for Denise and me and everyone else is whether you can change enough people's minds in time. Mark Stein's Last Call It's probably a totally non-COVID edition of Last Call today, but I can't say for certain because our first subject, Freddie Blum, was admitted to hospital with breathing problems. On the other hand, he might just have died because he was all worn out. That's the children of the township of Delft on the edge of Cape Town just three months ago wishing Freddie Blum a happy 116th birthday. That's right, born in Adelaide in what was then Cape Colony, May the 8th, 1904. We are standing in Voorbrug in Delft where Freddie Blum died on Saturday morning in the age of 116 years. We are at the house, his family home, uh, where we chatted to his widow a little bit earlier. Now, I, uh, Uncle Freddie Blom meant a lot for the community of Delft, and the people were very proud to have the oldest man in the world living in their community. The oldest man in the world? The Guinness Book of Records never quite signed off on that one. Mr. Blum had a birth certificate saying he was born in 1904, but it was a computer-generated one from 1999, not the original. And he himself was illiterate, never went to school for a single day, so there are no, for example, classroom records. Still, his neighbours bought into it, and so the birthday parties got more lavish. Imagine if your cake was too small to hold all your birthday candles. Well, for one very, very special man, that's not a worry at all. Delft resident Freddie Blum turns a ripe 115 years old and still going strong. Surrounded by 115 other senior guests and family, Opa Blum, as he's fondly known, is being celebrated at a party hosted by the Delft Senior Forum. That was last year's 115th birthday. He found this year's 116th more minimalist, socially distant observances a little depressing. And he had a simple request when it came to a birthday gift. Cigarettes. Just give me cigarettes. cigarettes. What else can you give me? Nothing. Most people his age have passed on, but 116-year-old Freddie Bloom of South Africa is still going strong. The survivor of the Spanish flu is determined to outlive the coronavirus pandemic. He recounts how the Spanish flu impacted his family. I lost one sister in 1918. Somewhere around there. One sister. 
Tired. A girl in our family died back then. That year, when the sickness broke out. Aside from contagion, Freddie Bloom, a man who outlived the Cape Colony, the Union of South Africa, General Smuts, the entire apartheid era, had no difficulty deciding which South Africa he preferred. Delft today is, like many Cape townships, murderous, violent, gang-ridden with assault routine and petty crime uninvestigated. Not like that in the old days, as Freddie recalled to the BBC just two years ago, quote, Life was much more peaceful. Those were good times. There were no murders and robberies. Nobody got hurt. There was nothing of the sort. You could lie on your bed all day, and when you woke up, everything, all your possessions would still be there. Now it's all changed. To what, aside from cigarettes... Did Freddie Bloom attribute his longevity? The good Lord. Honour thy mother and thy father, and your days will be lengthened. Dead at the age of 116, or thereabouts, Freddie Bloom. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there were listeners who liked the blizzard of F-words last Tuesday and demanded more of it. Well, you're out of luck. So in lieu, let's go out with that crudely obvious double entendre song from Kitty Callan uh, we heard a snatch of earlier. I checked on the internet and the phrase south of the border appears to be still au courant. Uh, if he's not interested in heading south of the border by the third date, forget him, etc. Still, I'm surprised Kitty sang this and even more surprised that Bob Hames and Alan Brandt wrote it as their big hit is that lovely ballad of romantic love, That's All. This one is more of a complaint. That's all. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. When we passed the equator, I thought our affair would bloom. They say that Latin moonlight makes the coldest heart go boom. But he just can't remember the number of my hotel room. Nothing's going on below the border. The nights are filled with music with a most suggestive beat. The sound of the marumbas ought to knock him off his feet. The tunes they play are tired, but only I can feel the heat. Nothing's going on below the border. I thought that here I'd get my man, he'd be mine to take. But all I've gotten here is a tan. South America, you're a fake. The scenery is lovely and the sun is very bright. But when the sun goes down, it can be awful dull at night. I know when I've been beaten, I'm going home on the next flight. Nothing's going on, nothing's going on. The Mark Stein Show. Nothing's going on below the border. It's a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.